A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 153, Basil II. You may have noticed that the last few episodes have been named after the men who tried to take control of Byzantium away from Basil II. I've deliberately not introduced the emperor until today, when he finally stands alone as master of Romania. Basil II was born in 958, the son of Romanus II, son of Constantine VII, son of Leo VI, son of Basil I. He was the eldest of three children, and at the age of five, his father unexpectedly died. The next twelve months would have been a confusing time. Nicephorus Phocas moved into the palace, married his mother Theophano, and became his stepfather. We have no idea what kind of relationship Phocas had with his stepchildren, or whether he had any kind of intimacy with their mother. But the White Death was a fixture in Basil's life from the age of five to fourteen, a very impressionable time. Phocas was a deeply impressive figure, the first true Roman conqueror since Heraclius. His triumphs through the streets of Constantinople would have impressed young Basil. Later in life, the emperor would adopt some of the same habits as the great general. He too would become a micromanaging military commander and stern disciplinarian with ascetic habits. Perhaps Basil imitated his stepfather, Perhaps he simply adopted traits that had proven successful for an emperor-general. There must always have been tension in the palace. Although Basil and his siblings were treated like royalty, they were also kept away from power. It's interesting to think that a young Bardas Phocas probably met the princes several times during this period. The thought that perhaps one day the Macedonians would be dispensed with must have crossed their minds. Helping to keep this thought at bay was their great-uncle, Le Capinos. 
he would have acted very much like their grandfather and presumably tried to assure them that this was still the Macedonian family business, even if we currently have a magnate CEO. The murder of Phokas by Zemiskis was an alarming development. Basil must have been distressed to wake up to news that soldiers had so easily crept into his home and slaughtered Nicephorus. As long as Phocas was married to Theophano, it would be problematic for him to disinherit his own children. But once Zimiskis removed her from the palace, the children must have felt even more insecure. Having said that, Le Capinos was now more powerful than ever, and Zimiskis was keen to emphasize that he ruled with Basil. Unlike the grim Nicephorus, John was personable and easygoing. He threw many a party, which Basil presumably enjoyed. It's possible that the two actually got on better than the frightened child had done with Phocas. Still, the question lingered, though, as the 970s wore on. What would happen when Basil came of age? It's easy to see why men fingered Le Capinos for Zimiskis's sudden demise. After all, it did neatly answer the question, leaving the 18-year-old Basil to be hailed as senior emperor. Basil spent the first period of civil war following his great-uncle around and doing as he was told. But as the intervening years stretched on, tension grew between master and apprentice. Removing Le Capinos from power was not as simple as just giving the order. As Basil's candid comments to Ibn Sharam imply, the palace was not yet his. Men were following the eunuch's orders before his own. If he acted too soon, there was every chance that the palace guards would lock him up and ask Le Capinos what he'd like to do next. The civil war was brought to Basil's door the fears he'd lived with his whole life. The magnates really did want the empire for themselves. If Sclerosis' first rebellion had succeeded in just a couple of months, then it's possible that Basil would have survived. He might have shared the fate of his brother Constantine and lived a life of irrelevant luxury. But once those wars turned into battles and bitter sieges, Basil was surely marked for death. It's hard to imagine he would have made it through a regime change. So with his life on the line, he was forced to become tough and proactive. He exiled his great-uncle, married off his sister, impaled, hung, and humiliated his enemies, and possibly even poisoned Phocas. What emerged from the civil wars was no creature of palace comfort, but a ruthless and pragmatic leader. When the wars were finally over, Basil was a hardened 32-year-old. His life so far had been a series of harsh lessons, and he would work for the rest of his days to ensure that no one would school him again. Despite being hailed as senior emperor in 976, Basil had discovered that the loyalty of the bureaucracy was to his great-uncle, and the loyalty of the armies was to their local magnate-general. These twin realizations guided much of his decision-making over the next 
36 years. As you probably know, Basil will dedicate the rest of his life to campaigning. The army had become a dangerous weapon, as capable of overthrowing the emperor as it was of hammering his enemies. Basil's solution was simple. Only he would lead them on campaign. His governors in Antioch and Thessalonica would have a few thousand troops to guard the frontier. But when a full field army was needed, it would always be the emperor leading them out. And Basil would keep them active throughout his reign. Some historians suggest that he did this in order to keep their energies always focused on the frontiers, never allowing them to sit home for years at a time, hatching schemes. Having said that, it may also be the case that after his experiences with Aleppo, the Bulgarians, and David of Tau, it had become clear to Basil that the Romans needed to make their presence regularly felt if their neighbours were to fall into line. On the domestic front, Basil worked hard to make himself the centre of imperial administration. He was frustrated to discover that Lecapinos's reach extended to every corner of the empire, and even beyond death. The eunuch had been in power for over 40 years. He knew everyone in Romania, and the palace was filled with his cronies. His rulings, deals, and appointments lived on beyond him. Shortly after he'd exiled his chief minister, Basil sent out word that he would not honour any agreement which he'd signed since becoming emperor. Anyone with such documents should come to court to have them confirmed again. Why? Because Basil had signed anything which his great-uncle had asked him to, and he hadn't always had a say in these matters. The problem is that he'd been signing documents for eight years before Le Capinos's fall. Naturally, men did not all come forward to get their land grants and legal cases reviewed. Instead, for the next decade, Basil would hear reports from his officials that men were contesting and complaining based on decisions made during the eunuch's time. In 996, then, 11 years after the exile, Basil issued an imperial decree which restated his demand that men bring him these documents to reapprove. We don't often see this side of imperial life. We think of the emperor as this scary, powerful figure. But here is Basil admitting to his own impotence. In the decree, he says plainly that he is annoyed to have to repeat himself but that during those first eight years, my opinion had no effect, and that Le Capinos's will prevailed in all matters. Over time, Basil would promote his own men to important administrative positions, but we should remember that he couldn't do away with experienced officials overnight, and many of those working in the palace would have been protégés of Le Capinos or even members of his extended family. For example, we know that another long-serving dignitary was one Michael Lecapinos. This was a grandson of Romanus I. He was too young to pose a threat to Constantine VII when he took power, 
so he was made a cleric and eventually rose to a high rank. The point being that there were lots of people in positions of influence that Basil just couldn't replace or remove. He had to struggle to master his own bureaucracy and his own family. To make himself the indispensable centre of the web, as his great-uncle had been. The 996 legislation was clearly aimed at this, demanding that men come before him, show their loyalty, and have their positions confirmed by him alone. Throughout the rest of the narrative, we'll see examples of Basil's attempt to master both his government and his army, the emperor will succeed at both, aided by the length of his reign. By the end of it, he was described by Michael Psellos as having subjugated his own people. That gives us the framework of Basil's life. But what about the man himself and his personality? We now turn to Michael Psellos who provides us with an incredibly detailed description of the Emperor's character. And for those wondering, that's spelt P-S-E-L-L-O-S, Pselos. Michael wrote a unique history of his time, where unlike most chroniclers, he doesn't recount the Empire's political and military events in sequence. Instead, he gives intimate character studies of 14 different Byzantine rulers, providing fascinating insights from his position as a courtier and senior advisor. Although Michael was only seven when Basil II died, he had ample opportunity to hear what others thought of him. As I've hinted several times, Pselos wrote his history with a particular slant in mind. You've already heard one of his editorial choices, which was to strongly imply that Basil did indeed poison Barda's focus. And Pselos wasn't trying to denigrate the emperor. On the contrary, he praised him as the best the Romans had during his lifetime. He very much argued that a ruthless pragmatist was what the empire needed. Anyway, bearing in mind that he has an agenda... Pselos is still an invaluable source for Basil's personality. The book was published in Michael's lifetime and was meant to be read by those around him, many of whom would know if he was inventing Basil's character out of whole cloth. Pselos tells us that as a young man, Basil was alert and intelligent, but that he also enjoyed the pleasures of life. As an extremely privileged prince, Basil indulged in the parties, feasts, and love affairs that were open to him. However, once he became senior emperor and the civil wars broke out, his demeanour changed. He abandoned the sensuous life and became determined and serious. Nothing so far that sounds too unlikely. Pselos elaborates that men described the adult Basil as austere, abrupt, irascible, and stubborn. After he'd defeated Phocas and Scleros, he had trouble trusting people. 
the barriers went up and he began to become less accessible, behaving in a haughty and secretive manner. Particularly on campaign, his temper could be frightening and any insubordination would bring an irate response. This seems especially plausible in the wake of the civil wars when the army made it clear that their primary loyalty was to their local commander. However, Selos concedes that Basil could be far more pleasant when at home and in times of peace. He was known for seeking justice, looking for the true cause of trouble rather than shooting the messenger. He would put his faith in men he'd known for a long time, although once you disappointed him, he would not quickly forget. This rounded picture of Basil is confirmed in an interesting way in Pselos's text. The focus of his description of the emperor is on the hardened man of the army that Basil will become. He describes the Vasilevs as a man of steel, that he would stay on campaign for years rather than come home at the end of summer, that he would train his body to deal with the heat and the cold through ascetic discipline, that he would micromanage the battlefield and punish men who broke ranks, even if their charge led to victory. His personal habits also fit into this Nicephorian mould. He took his spiritual advisor on campaign. He removed all frippery from his person. He would wear no special collars, rings, diadems, or fancy colours. He would often receive officials in a simple purple cloak with a couple of jewels to denote his status. He refused to use fancy rhetoric, preferring the plain speech of the common man. There's no reason to believe this description isn't true, but it starts to build a picture of Basil as the ascetic autocratic general, very much like Nicephorus Phocas, that his propaganda intended him to be. Naturally, Basil's determination to take charge of his army and administration led to official documents reflecting this impression of him, that he was a powerful and serious commander of men. Pselos consulted the imperial archives, and they may have influenced this impression. As would the memories of Pselos's friends. They, like him, would have been young men when Basil was in his fifties and sixties. No wonder to them he seemed distant, moody, and demanding. They didn't know him personally, but as Pselos's career continued, he met men who had seen Basil's softer side. Thirty years after the emperor's death, our historian was serving the emperor Isaac Komnenos. On one occasion, he reveals that Isaac kept him and his entourage up into the late hours of the night, telling them stories of Basil and his witty sayings. Yes, the emperor was clearly known for being funny. This is where Pselos's text is so valuable. Given that Basil spent his life on campaign and never married, it would be easy to imagine that he was just like the white death of the Saracens, grimly determined, religious, and humorless. But we know that Basil, as a Macedonian prince, would have had a first-rate palace education, 
and that his grandfather and great-grandfather were both renowned writers and speakers. Could Basil really have escaped this heritage to become a taciturn border warrior? Selos reveals that this wasn't exactly the case. He records some of Basil's legendary comments. One is when he meets Bardas Skleros to accept the general's surrender. The aging Skleros actually had to be helped to the emperor's tent by some guards. Basil was said to have exclaimed, So this is the man I feared, a suppliant dotard unable to walk by himself? On another occasion, his troops complained to the emperor that his pre-battle inspection was taking far too long. Basil listened patiently before smilingly saying, If I wasn't so thorough, your battles would go on forever. This image of Basil joking around with his soldiers gives us a far fuller picture than we might otherwise have. Pselos also describes the emperor laughing at other people's jokes, saying he had a loud chuckle, which made his whole body shake. Basil was apparently very ordinary-looking. He had blue eyes and was slightly shorter than average. It was only when he was on horseback, as he was a fine rider, that he assumed truly imperial stature. Basil was, of course, a religious man, and that probably did influence his ascetic tastes. The question of whether this explains his decision not to marry remains an open one. There was some suggestion that Nicephorus Phocus took a vow of celibacy after the death of his wife and son. Perhaps Basil did the same. Some have even suggested he made a deal with God in order to gain victory in Bulgaria. But given we've just avoided stereotyping the man, I think it's safer to assume it was a more complicated decision. Certainly after he saw the shenanigans which surrounded his own mother's marital life, you can imagine why he would be wary of such alliances. But why not marry a woman from a minor noble family? Or a foreign princess if he wanted to avoid her relatives coming into the palace? No suggestion of homosexuality exists. Pselos implies he had girlfriends when he was young, but you never know. It remains a puzzling decision on his part, and later in life we'll discuss this again. For now, let's leave it with Jonathan Shepard's clever comment that Basil married his army. Let's close out this introduction with one more story from Pselos' history. This is the famous advice which the defeated Skleros gave to Basil when they met. Now, this conversation almost certainly didn't take place. It's Pselos putting words into Skleros's mouth and using hindsight. So what is being said is essentially a description of the type of ruler that Basil will become. The emperor asks the general how he can avoid a repeat of the civil wars, and this is what Skleros says. Cut down the governors who become overproud. Let no generals on campaign have too many resources. 
exhaust them with unjust exactions to keep them busied with their own affairs. Admit no woman to the imperial councils, be accessible to no one, share with few your most intimate plans. As we will see in the rest of the narrative, this is an accurate portrayal of Basil's tactics. He wouldn't marry, he trusted no generals with his army, and he would appear haughty and distant to his officials. One historian of the time claims that Basil would actually set off on campaign without having told his soldiers where they were going. But what about this exhausting people with unjust exactions to keep them busy? This refers to various pieces of legislation connected with Basil's attempts to become master of his administration. We will discuss them in detail in the future. As for cutting down the governors who become over-proud, we've already seen Bardas Skliros and David of Tau offered a friendly deal, political retirement in exchange for luxury. This was a deal which Basil forced on many men. Nicephorus Phocus, for one, that's Bardas's son, who remained a wealthy landlord but was never given serious office. Constantine VIII, the emperor's brother, was allowed to have a wife and family and to live in various palaces, but he was never let near government. Finally, there is the famous case of Evstathios Maleinos. The magnate and Phocas ally survived the civil wars, but came face to face with the emperor on campaign in 995, so about six years from where we are now. As the army came back from Syria, it came to rest in Cappadocia on Malinos's estate, the very land where Bardas Phocas had been hailed emperor. Whether a deal had been worked out in advance or not, Maleinos would be given the Sclerose treatment. He accompanied Basil back to the capital, where he would live out his days in urban luxury. But he would never hold political office again, and on his death his estates passed to the crown. The rebellions of Phocas and Sclerose had been dependent on their position as generals in the army, with access to imperial funds to pay their men. Basil knew that retiring men from public life neutered them. One could argue that keeping Maleinos in impotent luxury for the rest of his life was a very light form of torture. A contemporary chronicler described the Focus faction denied office as ranting like caged lions. During his youth, Basil had experienced plenty of this particular form of cruelty, and now it was his turn to politely relieve his rivals of their claws. Next time, we head out to the Balkans to learn more about Samuel and the refounded Bulgarian state. Basil will march out to meet them in battle, keen for military glory and revenge. He will be there a while.
Thanks to you, the history of Byzantium, the city that lives in our minds, has made it past 150 installments. The emperor is marching in triumph through the streets today, greeting the people with gratitude for all they've done. He approaches you, his hand outstretched, but you recoil. Guilt makes you feel unworthy to receive a handshake from God's vice-regent. You remember that you haven't actually given the history of Byzantium an iTunes review. But I don't use iTunes, you say, and I'm so busy. But as the emperor clasps your hand and shakes it, you realize you could have done so much more. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.